it's easy for a powerful and warm feeling to overwhelm us as we assemble and come together to worship the great God of heaven. I know that many who have already been mentioned are struggling in health-wise one, perhaps some more so than others, and yet for each of them, we do hope and very much pray that things will be much better for them very soon and that they can enjoy again gathering with all of us in offering service and worship to God. I hope that you have your Bible still open to Matthew 22, for we'll be devoting the entirety really of our lesson as the Lord delivered a parable in that marvelous chapter. If you would be turning back to there, if you're still not there, and let me make some introductory remarks, and then we'll launch into our lesson. This next slide is one that reminds us about the entire character and nature of a parable. You and I realize that Jesus was the master teacher. He was the best teacher that's ever lived. And He often utilized the methodology of a parable in order to use something familiar and set it alongside a spiritual truth. In fact, the word parable literally means to lay alongside. You and I remember many of the parables that Jesus taught. Maybe not one of the first ones that would come to our mind would be the one we're going to study this morning. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, some have at least briefly described a parable merely as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And there's a lot of focus, a lot of emphasis really to a description like that. Near the bottom of that slide, the Lord's parables were exceedingly effective. And they were exceedingly memorable. You and I living 20 centuries this side of the Lord's telling of them can still recollect many of them. In fact, even to individuals merely who don't have strong association to the church, I suspect you could mention to them about a good Samaritan and they'd know what you were talking about. Simply because the Lord gave a description in a parable about a good Samaritan. With all of that said... Let's cast a spotlight this morning on the Lord's parable of the wedding feast, or some would call it the marriage feast, found in the opening part of Matthew chapter 22. This next slide is one that highlights for us a setting. Before I read that parable in its fullness, I'd like to invite you to appreciate the Lord taught a trio of parables right here near the end of His life in the flesh. If I could remind you of the circumstances, the appreciation, we have now arrived at the Tuesday of the Passion Week. Remember, Jesus entered into Jerusalem on, on Sunday in a triumphal way, riding on the back of the donkey. Two days later, on Tuesday, He, of course, did much teaching that day, and as a part of that teaching, these three parables occurred you may notice that they had an increasing height of appreciation. The first one, as I've invited you to notice, was the parable of the two sons that highlighted their rejection of John the Baptist. They hadn't paid attention to his teaching and utilized the things that he had shared with them like they should. The second parable was the one that's typically recognized as the parable of the wicked husbandman. That one really did drive home the point of the Jewish rejection of Jesus, how that, in fact, the son had been sent, and they killed him and cast him out of the garden. But you'll notice that in the final analysis, judgment came upon those wicked husbandmen. But the third parable was the parable of the wedding feast. 
and that's the one will be our discussion today, it more vividly describes the Jewish rejection of Jesus. It more vividly and dramatically presents what will happen in terms of judgment upon them. But may I suggest that there is great teaching and benefit in it for you and me today. And we'll certainly try to highlight that as our lesson proceeds. As we close that slide, though, it brings us to the parable, and I would invite you to listen as I read Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready, come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, and another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen." And that's the parable of the wedding feast, Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. As you and I begin to inquire about the nature of the parable and the benefits of the great lessons in it, let's turn our attention and begin to make some observations. I thought I would develop this lesson in the following way. On this slide and the one to follow, we're going to list the elements of the parable and out to the right, the interpretation of it. When the Bible says this, it means this. That was the approach that I thought we would attempt this morning. I hope we all find it beneficial to see it in that light. So there are several things about this parable. There's a king, there's a son, there's a marriage, there's a man with no garment, no appropriate wedding garment on, there's a judgment. What does all of that mean? I believe as we appreciate those emphases, we shall find the Lord pointing not only a great lesson for the Jewish society of that day, but directly pointing a lesson to you and me that we might learn a powerful spiritual truth based on the nature of this parable. And so here we go. You'll notice verses 2 and 3 make mention of a king. It says, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king. When the Bible makes reference to that king in that fashion, I hope you and I would think about God, recognizing that the Word of God presents Him without doubt as the great and almighty King. Psalm 44, verse number 4, 
as well as that remarkable passage in 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. Isn't it there declared that God is the one and only and eternal King? Here, isn't it true then that God had an interest in the welfare and the nature of those individuals? But let's go on and note this. You'll notice that the king's son is listed. Verse number one, 2 goes on to say, "...which made a marriage for his son." Now earlier in one of those parables, it had already been highlighted, of course, that the king, ultimately the one who had owned the vineyard, had sent his son, and those servants, those individuals had treated him very spitefully. In fact, even killed him. On this occasion... You notice that the king is such that he was making a marriage. Now may we say this, the actual Greek statement, the Greek assertion would point us to the fact he was making a marriage feast. It's not the actual marriage per se, it was the celebration surrounding it, a marriage feast. And the king was making preparation like this for his son. You and I are well aware of the basic nature of how parents will often assist in the reality of those things surrounding a marriage. No doubt the king had made much readiness, as we're about to see, for the nature of that feast for his, mar- for his son's marriage. When you see son, you ought to think Jesus. After all, he's the son of God. And how often do we remember in texts like John 1 verse 14, that God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, A passage echoed in Galatians 4, verse number 4. Surely, in light of those two things, it brings us to note this. The text says that a marriage feast was in preparation. I hope your mind and mine races to Revelation 19. Now, truly, for your understanding and mine, we well remember the Old Testament had highlighted the reality of God offering the preciousness of His will and the salvation's offer through the description of a feast. Specifically, I've called your attention Isaiah 25, verse number 6. In that Old Testament, God offered through the imagery of a feast His offering to the people of Israel. For you and me today, as I've already mentioned, we no doubt ought to think of Revelation 19. There in the closing book in the Bible, we have a grand description of a wonderful feast. And the servants of God are going to be present. The devil isn't there. All of his henchmen, his demons aren't there. All of those on earth who serve the devil aren't there. The only one standing, if you please, in the marvelous light of that final day are those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the Lamb, of course, is none other than Jesus Christ. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and might and dominion, Revelation 5.12. That Lamb, of course, is the same one of whom John the baptizer spoke in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And thus, in light of these three elements so far... Let's read on to observe. Servants are now listed. It says in verse number 3, "...and sent forth His servants to call them which were bidden." Those servants. That is a respectful description of God's servants, His prophets. The people throughout the ages who in fact have been His 
workers and who have been those to preach the truth and urge men to repent. And the Old Testament often pointed us to the reality of men like Jeremiah and Isaiah and so many others who, though they were oppressed and though they were often persecuted, they preached the truth of God. They urged the Jewish nation to be faithful. With that in mind, you might then consider the following. In Amos chapter 3 verse 7, as well as Daniel chapter 9 verse number 10, God's servants, His prophets were described in language like this. With that in mind, the next element for consideration then is those bidden. You and I noticed it well in verses 3 and 4. The king had everything ready for that marriage feast, and he sent out the servants. You go and tell them to come. I've got the dinner ready. Everything's prepared. It is with that note, though, that we quickly observe. Verse 3 says, They would not come. The feast was ready. Things were prepared. Previously, an invitation had been sent. Previously, there had been information about the coming reality of this, and apparently they had agreed to come. But now, they said, I can't. And the text says they went off to their farm, or they went off to their business. But they didn't come. Surely, you and I can appreciate a note of sadness in the reality of the king. He had invested so much. He had made so many things ready, and yet the very ones, and notice, they didn't have to bring anything but themselves, and yet they wouldn't come. Out to the right, I've asked you to notice the significance, the interpretation. These that weren't, wouldn't come, the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation, for many centuries, they were the people who had had the Word of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 2. They had the Word of God at their disposal. The law of Moses had been given to them. God expected them to keep it, and they agreed that they would. And yet now, when the precious son's marriage feast was here, remember the son's Jesus, and they wouldn't accept him. They wouldn't come now. The king's son's not who they wanted. They wanted an earthly empire that would free them from Roman rule. They wanted an earthly empire that would allow them the liberty to do what they wanted. They didn't like a king like Jesus. And so they wouldn't come. The Jews, by and large, rejected the Master, didn't they? I've asked you to notice in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, and Romans 9, verse 32, statements are made how that, in fact, the Jews stumbled over Jesus. They tripped over Him. He isn't what they were looking for. Tragic, isn't it? Perhaps that tragedy is only highlighted when we remember. If it's true, and it certainly it appears to be, that this statement about those rejecting were the Jewish nation, don't you and I remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23? In verses 37 and following of that chapter, it was here one more time that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. How often, He said, would I have gathered you as a hen, her chicks beneath her wings, and you wouldn't. I invited and you wouldn't come. I offered you salvation and you rejected it. I was the thoroughfare through which you and all those about could be saved and you would not come. 
Jerusalem, by and large, rejected him. And the Jewish nation, by and large, turned their back upon him. Let you and I note one more thing. You notice that the king's response was this. Verse number 6. The remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. History records, and so does the Old Testament, that the Jews often would put to death those prophets because they didn't like them. You and I remember in the book of Hebrews, it is said that some of them were sawn asunder. What do you think about that? Maybe in finality we should come to verse 7. It says, But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. When the king heard what they did to his servants who only sent to invite them to come to the feast, and yet they not only rejected them, but they often killed them. The king was angry. Remember the king's God. And verse 7 indicates that he sent forth some armies. And he not only destroyed the murderers, he destroyed the city. That was fulfilled in A.D. 70. After the rejection of Jesus, remember Jesus, even before He died on the cross, He said, This generation shall see these things come to pass. And in Matthew 24, He revealed various signs that would come. It was described in verse 15 of that chapter, wasn't it? As that description of, and the reality surrounding the demolition of, the desolation of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. The Roman armies came, led by Titus, and when they did, they did destroy it. And not only that, they burned it. What the Lord prophesied here in this parable came to pass. And what a verdict of judgment it was upon the Jewish nation for their rejection of the Son and the marriage feast that surrounded Him. May I ask you to note one more thing. The king, however, said this. Verse number 8. The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. These who I first invited weren't worthy, but I still want others to come. And you go and invite them. And as you'll notice at the bottom of the slide, these others represents the Gentiles. You invite these others to come, this nation of people who were not my chosen Old Testament people, and yet... They're the ones that are now going to be invited. There are other passages in the New Testament that give us a fuller understanding of that. I've invited you to notice Acts 13, 46. The Apostle Paul on the first missionary journey, he specifically said, the Jewish economy, the Hebrew nation, they rejected it. I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. And he did. Later on in Romans 1, 16, Paul there said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile, to the Greek. But the Jews had the first opportunity, but they rejected it. This parable seemingly points out that truth in dramatic fashion. Let's read on. Furthermore, in our parable, we now notice that the king looks with care upon his guests, those that did come to that marriage feast. 
May I ask you to notice that too has a great lesson in it. It highlights the reality of God's careful inspection of those who claim to be His. Let me say that again. His careful scrutiny, His careful examination of those who claim to be His. So, on this second appreciation, there were again many who came. And the king, verse number 11 says, the king came to see the guests. May you and I never think that God's not aware of and not closely appreciative of the kind of person we are. We can't fool God. We might fool our neighbor. We might pretend to be what we really are not in his or her sight, but we'll never, ever fool God. You'll notice in some passages like Hebrews 4.13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In Acts chapter 1, he is described as the great heart searcher. With those things in mind, we then note this. He saw something very strange. Verse number 12. He saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Now maybe a bit of history will be a helpful thing here. You and I think about a wedding garment when the bride and the groom, of course, take the wedding vows. Usually the bride will dress in a very ornate and extravagant way, or at least a very special way. And the groom will also dress up very finely. In that day and time, it was typical. When there was a wedding feast, the one who sponsored or gave it would provide proper attire for, air, for everybody to wear. So when you came into the assembly, you would put on a garment that was given to you to wear. That's what's meant. The gentleman was provided a garment, but he chose not to wear it. He didn't put it on. Let's read on. It says in verse 12, He said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having on a wedding garment? If I may paraphrase, you were given a garment. Why are you in here and not wearing it? Did you note the man's answer? Verse 12, he was speechless. He didn't have a good answer. He didn't have anything to say. He was speechless. You'll notice on the slide I've asked you to consider. That highlights the reality of disobedience. He was told, he was given what to wear and told to wear it. And he just didn't do it. He didn't have a good answer. There was nothing more to say. He just didn't do what the king said to be, that needed to be done. That matter in disobedience, of course, casts a strong spotlight on the reality message for you and me today, doesn't it? How sad it would be to ponder the thought of, again, being given the proper apparel, being given the right attire, and choosing not to put it on, and then having to find some answer to give to the king. I don't have a good reason. I just didn't do what you told me to do. Although you made it available, although you provided it, I just chose not to wear it. In 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7, that issue and disobedience is put before you and me again. When Paul himself on that occasion highlighted to that church, to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that obey not God. They don't know God. They don't have and obey the gospel. 
disobedience. Why don't we close that slide then like this? What happened to the man? Verse 13, the king said this, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Would you appreciate the fact then that it was not a minor matter? The king didn't just say, it's all right if you stay. The king had this response. Bind him, that is tie him up, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Otherwise, in the New Testament, that idea is used, of course, to describe eternal punishment. It's used to describe the reality and the circumstance surrounding final separation from God. Keeping that thought in mind, we close that slide with that final observation. In Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 48, that same language is used. Outer darkness, fire that never is quenched, the understanding attached to this final and complete separation. May I suggest we use what brief time remains and think about several applications. Each one we've already highlighted in passing. All I'm going to do is list them separately. What about the first one? Although that initial invitation sent by the king was for the Jewish nation, did you notice after the fact, you go out to the highways and invite others. Today, aren't you and I blessed The gospel invitation is for everybody. Everybody. Where you live in this country or another, whether you're man or woman, what other stations in life, the gospel invitation is yours and mine. And aren't we thankful? Jesus highlighted that truth even in this parable. Though the Jews had the first opportunity, it did not rest only for them. All of us have been welcomed, invited to come. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. You'll notice some additional verses I've asked you to consider. It's the desire of God that all might come to salvation. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4 says, He will have all men to come into a knowledge of the truth and to be saved. That means every one of us, God wants us to be in heaven. He wants us to live in such a fashion that eternal salvation shall be ours. We ought to feel a great deal of power behind the fact the invitation is universal. But with that, look at the second lesson. Though it's true that many are called, Matthew twenty-two fourteen. Think how many have spurned the invitation. Consider it with me. It's true the Jewish nation spurned it. They were not dutiful recipients of that invitation. They nailed the Son of God to the cross. But today, how many more spurned the invitation? How many more, hearing gospel messages, choose not to respond positively? They choose to respond negatively. They choose to remain lost. Tragic, sad, and it'll be eternally so if things don't change. But notice the invitation spurned. Look at these verses with me. 
Sometimes it's through indifference. That is to say, maybe the person doesn't realize the urgency of the moment. That doesn't change the fact that it still is urgent. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6, 33 and 34, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And then He made this statement, Give no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the days the evil thereof. We're always going to be surrounded by evil. Maybe we think not so much of it sometimes. Maybe though it could simply be through rebellion. Maybe the person does have a sense of where they're headed, but they just are not going to respond. One thing is true. For us ever to be pleasing before God, we must submit to Him. We're not equal to Him. May we always be submissive. Verses I would call to your attention would be Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Jesus submitted, though He were a son, yet learned He obedience by the things which He suffered. And we are told we must do it as well. Lesson number three might bring us to this note. All things are ready. You and I are admonished to come to the truth, to come to the feast. But lesson three is this. What about the man that wasn't attired properly? You and I have been invited to come. What must we choose to wear? He has told us what apparel to wear. It isn't left to us. Would you note some of these verses with me? Revelation 19 makes this statement. I'd invite you to notice the clearness of it. I'll begin reading in verse 7 of that chapter. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in white linen, May we all take note. Her bride is the church. We've been given white linen to wear. Clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. The fine linen you and I must wear are the righteous commanded acts of God, the righteousness of the saints. Are we living faithfully each day by adorning ourselves with the rightful, proper apparel? The white linen of Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. You'll notice on that slide, this man was speechless. May I ask, what possible answer will anybody have at the day of judgment? Having heard the invitation and spurned it. And when the Lord says, why didn't you then wear the garment? What will the person say? There will be no good answer. There couldn't be. The Lord died at the cross. He shed His blood. He paid for the church. He gave us what to wear. All he asks of us is faithfulness. The man was speechless. I hope that none of us will be in that predicament. But let's read on and make one final application. Application number four. Judgment. You'll notice that the king cast the man out. He bound him hand and foot, had him bound, and then cast him into eternal punishment. There's coming a moment of judgment... There's coming a time when, in fact, the final pronouncement will be made. There'll be no turning back. There'll be no court of appeals. There'll be no undoing anything. All the opportunities will have then been gone. Today, if there's anybody in this audience who 
would list yourself among those who've been called but not chosen, why don't you make a change today? We've all been called. Jesus said few are chosen. Are you among the few? Are you among the few? Be honest. If you're not, the opportunity for response is about to take place today at least. Jesus sent His Son to die on the cross, or rather God sent His Son to die on the cross. And He paid for this beautiful organization called the church. And in this parable, we've seen many realities that not only taught great lessons about the Jewish nation, but it has applications, great lessons for you and me as well. Many are called, but few are chosen. I want to be among the few chosen, don't you? If you aren't among that few today, you need to do something about it. Just like you'll notice what happened to the man that was not properly attired, there's coming a judgment and a time when you'll have to give an answer. And I know you'll not have anything to say. There won't be anything to say. If you're lost, please don't remain in that condition. If we could be of assistance to you today, helpfulness in your public response to the gospel, just as Jesus urged them to come, we still carry that message today. You need to believe in Jesus with all of your heart. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And if we could help you, we'd be honored. If you need to return to your first love, notice in light of that invitation sent, Sometimes even those who accepted it at first ultimately rejected it. You don't want to be in that number either. Today, if you need to return to your first love, we'd be happy to assist you by praying to God on your behalf. You'll need to repent of the sins and confess them, and God's promised to forgive them. If we could help you today, we want to do it. All together we stand and sing.